Hey, Rounds Table listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you to take a seat at the table. The Rounds Table is looking to diversify and expand our team of co-hosts. We are looking for individuals who are interested in becoming a regular co-host and who want to take on a leadership role at the Rounds Table. Interested applicants should have strong skills in critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine. The Rounds Table has been downloaded over 200,000 times from a total of 138 countries worldwide. So we're looking for great people to help us continue to build this exciting platform. There is a lot of exciting work going on at the Rounds Table and we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're interested, please contact myself with a simple expression of interest at kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca. That's K-I-E-R-A-N dot Q-U-I-N-N at mail.utoronto.ca. The deadline for applications is the end of March. We look forward to hearing from you. Now on with the show. This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us again this week as always. Today on the show we have a brand new guest which we're excited to have on the table with us. Uh, it's Dr. Kevin Venus who is the Chief Medical Resident at Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, he's also the latest and greatest recruit to the General Internal Medicine Fellowship at the University of Toronto. And we are very pleased and honored to have him on the show. Dr. Venus, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks very much, Karen. I'm glad to be here. So, why don't we dive right in? Tell us about the article and study that you chose for the rounds table this week. Uh, sure. So, I chose to talk about the PRESERVE trial, uh, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November this year. And it was looking at prevention of contrast-induced nephropathy in patients undergoing angiography. All right. We've actually talked about this in seasons past in not so much a high-quality trial that this was, but with Lauren Lacroix, we talked about it to look at contrast induced from nephropathy in the emergency department. That was a negative study, so let's find out what uh, this PRESERVE trial has to teach us. Tell us, Kevin, what is the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line for this study is that uh, among patients who are at moderate to high risk of acute kidney injury who are undergoing uh, angiography with a contrast dye, there was a, no benefit of IV sodium bicarbonate infusion over IV saline or oral N-acetylcysteine over placebo for the prevention of death need for dialysis, uh, prevention of contrast nephropathy or persistent decline in renal function at 90 days. I see. So also a negative trial. Interesting. Let's find out a little bit more about it. Tell us, Kevin, why did you choose this article or otherwise stated, why is it important in the greater context of literature? So I chose this article for a couple of reasons. One is I tend to be a minimalist and I am kind of naturally drawn towards negative trials. But in a broader sense, it's because contrast-induced nephropathy or CIN is something that on the general medicine ward we worry about quite a bit. We worry about it on the nephrology consult service. And it's a kind of uh, feared complication of a lot of the procedures that our patients undergo. And it's something that there have been a lot of uh, studies looking at, but not a lot of clear guidance about how best to manage or prevent it. And so uh, there's a lot of thought about various treatments that might be helpful, but we're kind of missing a rigorous study like this one. I think it's an important study. I will, I will preserve or reserve my comments for later. So tell us, Kevin... 
What was the design of the study and where did it take place? Uh, so this was a double-blind placebo and comparator-controlled randomized trial. And it took place from 2013 to early 2017 at over 50 medical centers internationally, the majority of which were located in the United States and Australia. And just for our less well-versed listeners, what is a comparator-controlled trial as opposed to a traditional placebo-controlled trial, which we're used to? Yeah, so that's actually one of the interesting design elements of this study is that they used a two-by-two factorial design. And without getting into too much jargon, what that means is that there were four main groups of participants. And what differed between them was the type of IV fluid and then the oral treatment or placebo that they received. So one group would have received IV normal saline with N-acetylcysteine. Another group received IV saline with a placebo, a oral placebo. And the other two groups would have received IV bicarbonate with then again either N-acetylcysteine or placebo to kind of complete the combinations. Ah, I see. So that's clearly the intervention. Who are the, who are the patients that they ended up including in this study? Uh, so the main patient population uh, that we can think about, uh, so in terms of the inclusion criteria, the patients that were uh, enrolled in the study were undergoing coronary or non-coronary angiography who had an EGFR of either between 15 and 44.9 or between 45 and 59.9 with diabetes. And what this really boils down to is people who had either stage 3 or 4 chronic kidney disease or stage 3A with diabetes. Right. And so as you kind of mentioned in the bottom line, we're talking about a higher risk or high risk population of individuals to develop contrast-induced nephropathy, not just all comers who are going to get a contrast load. Is that, does that about get it right? Yes, and I think that's actually one of the strengths of the trial that we'll talk about a bit later on, but this is definitely a high-risk population. Any particular exclusion criteria that are important to mention? Uh, So they excluded patients who received an emergency procedure, an emergency angiographic procedure, or those who had an unstable creatinine, which they defined as either having an increase or decrease in serum creatinine of equal or greater to 25% in the three days prior to the procedure, which... I think sounds reasonable because you want to make sure that a patient is uh, at roughly steady state. Absolutely. You don't want to muddy the waters or dye the waters, so to speak, by having unstable creatinines when you're looking for an outcome that is really measured by an rising creatinine. Exactly. So what were the primary outcomes? We've heard that, that patients are randomized to essentially four different potential groups. What are they measuring? Uh, So the primary outcome was a composite outcome, as we're seeing more and more in in these large trials. And the composite was comprised of death, uh, need for hemodialysis, a persistent increase of at least 50% from baseline in serum creatinine at 90 to about 105 days post-angiography, which would then be confirmed if it had risen. Uh, They also had a secondary outcome, or a series of secondary outcomes, which were really the components of the composite outcome separated from each other. Right, and that's often what we'll see these days is large composite outcomes as a primary and then the individual components as a secondary. Anything else that was important that wasn't an individual component of the primary outcome? The only other piece for the secondary outcome is that they looked at hospitalization with ACS, heart failure, or stroke in 90 days, and then also looked at any cause hospitalization within 90 days. Great. So thanks for setting the table for us. What were the main findings of this important sounding trial? 
Sure. So to start with the patients who are actually enrolled, there was just over 5,100 patients who underwent randomization, and uh, about 96% or 4,900 or so were included in the primary analysis. We get a sense of who the typical patient is and uh, to see how generalizable it can be to our practice. The median age of a uh, patient in this trial was 70 years old, and they're overwhelmingly a male population. Um, About 94% of the uh, participants were male. And they mentioned that this was because most of the hospitals in the uh, states where the patients were uh, drawn from and enrolled from were veterans' uh, hospitals. Uh, The Veterans Affairs uh, group of hospitals. Right. Makes sense. As we hinted at before, uh, overwhelming majority of the uh, participants had diabetes at about 80%. And in our SI or Canadian units, uh, the median creatinine, uh, baseline creatinine was about 130, and the median EGFR was 50. All right. So, Kevin, one of the things that we didn't talk about in the intervention was the fact that the volume of fluid that saline or placebo and bicarbonate delivered was pre-specified and based on weight. Um, So tell me about in the real practice of this trial, how did that look as far as the median volumes that they infused into individuals? Yes, that's right. They followed a uh, somewhat complicated weight-based algorithm to decide how much fluid each patient should receive either pre-angiography, during the angiographic procedure, or afterwards. And to give you a sense or to help us interpret the findings, I think it's useful to understand what sort of volume of IV fluid we're really dealing with here. Um, In total, Patients got just over a liter of fluid in the peri-angiography period, and the majority or about almost 600 milliliters of that fluid uh, was after the angiographic procedure. The study also looked at the comparison between the volumes of the different types of IV fluids and found that there was no difference between the median volumes of normal saline and IV bicarbonate. So... That's important to know. What did they find uh, with respect to their primary composite outcome? So interestingly, as we alluded to in the, in the lead up, uh, this was a negative study and there was no significant difference found between the primary composite endpoint in uh, comparison of the treatment combination groups. And so that's really looking at the comparison across all four treatment groups and comparing both those patients who received different IV fluids to each other and then different comparisons looking at the patients who received different oral treatments, either N-acetylcysteine or placebo with each other again. And this is one of the benefits of a two-by-two design. Right. And so as far as the event rate that they were seeing with regards to development of contrast-induced nephropathy, you mentioned that was a secondary outcome. What did they, what was the actual rate or or proportion of patients who developed contrast-induced nephropathy? So specifically for CIN, in the IV bicarbonate group, 239 patients uh, developed contrast-induced nephropathy, which was about 9.5%. And in the normal saline group, it was uh, very similar at about 8.3-8.4%, which was found to be statistically not significant. Then comparing the oral treatments to each other, in the NAC cohort, the N-acetylcysteine cohort, 217 patients developed CIN, which was 8.7%. So then if we compare to the oral treatments of N-acetylcysteine to placebo, 228 patients developed CIN received N-acetylcysteine, which was 9.1%, compared with 217 or 8.7% who received placebo. Now, they did a bunch of subgroup analyses, and 
tell us, was there anything interesting that can be found in those uh, sets of analyses? Not really, to be honest. I think the most interesting outcome of the subgroup analyses was that there wasn't any difference between the subgroups and that there really didn't seem to be any benefit between people receiving either a version of IV fluid or either oral treatment, depending on which preventative treatment they All right. Well, all of the findings seem to be concordant with each other in that there doesn't appear to be a signal anywhere. Um, And that kind of supports the overall primary outcome of a lack of uh, differences in these uh, four groups. So anything else that was interesting that caught your eye that you wanted to bring up? Yeah. So I think one thing that I found interesting was that the median volume of fluid that we mentioned already uh, received by Uh, the patients in this study was relatively small at just over a liter of fluid in total um, pre and post angiography, uh, which I think really speaks to the idea that uh, to help prevent post angiographic complications such as CIN, we shouldn't view it as, you know, a requirement to flood these patients with lots of fluid and to tend towards hypervolemia. But I took this as a sign to, you know, make sure that you're really just avoiding hypovolemia and that you're making sure that people aren't overdiuresed uh, before they get these potentially nephrotoxic um, contrast dyes. Right. But do you think that one potential explanation as into a lack of signal is that there simply wasn't enough fluid administered to be able to reduce the risk of CIN? Yeah, that's a definitely uh, reasonable way to think about it as well. And I think my own uh, minimalist bias may, maybe is uh, pulling through here because I, I kind of want this to be a negative study in some ways. Fair enough. Fair enough. Any other important uh, limitations or points you wanted to make, Kevin? I think the other things that are important to remember are that due to the Veterans Affairs, the VA hospital population in this study, uh, it is overwhelmingly male. And so uh, we may not be able to extrapolate to a more you know general population with approximately 50% females as well. That being said, we know males are at, in general at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. So that might be a useful bias in some ways. The other thing that I thought about was that there was relatively low volumes of contrast used in this study. The median volume was uh, just over 80 milliliters, which they don't really talk about the types of procedures necessarily that these people were receiving, but it doesn't sound like many people were receiving, you know, as we colloquially say, an LV gram in the, in the cath suite, for example. Fair enough. And I think the only other point to make is that this was really looking at procedure-based angiography and not specifically at radiographic procedures such as CT scans that contain contrast dye. The dyes, from what I understand, are relatively similar, but it wasn't specifically studied. Right. So what I'm kind of hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we've taken a high-risk population and we've potentially not given them enough fluid to prevent CIN. And in addition, we may not have given them enough contrast load to adequately induce CIN, although we did see a fairly high event rate of 10% in this population. But it sounds to me like there still might be a couple of questions in your mind as to whether this study seals it in your in your mind as to whether CIN is preventable in any way? I, I think that for me, this study overall was the most rigorously designed study uh, to answer this question that we have to date. And the, f- the other fact of the matter is that it was actually stopped before full enrollment was achieved because there was this 
early lack of signal seen. So to me, methodologically, uh, I like the study quite a bit, and I think it's attempting to answer an important clinical question. And because the prevention of CIN or the attempted prevention of CIN can vary in terms of practice patterns, some people prefer to give NAC, some people prefer to give bicarbonate, I, I think that this study will go a long way in terms of actually standardizing practice. All right. Well, thanks for bringing that to the table this week, Kevin. It's a great study, and I I do find it to be very valuable and certainly will make me pause and think about contrast-induced nephropathy and uh, what I need to do about it for my patients who are at high risk. And in this case, I may not need to do very much other than some of the important points that you mentioned. Let's move on now to the study that I chose for this week. It's an entirely different left turn from what we were just talking about, but I still think it's really interesting and important. And it is looking at the effect of a surgeon's biological sex on patients' post-operative outcomes and whether there's a difference uh, based uh, on outcomes due to surgeons' underlying biological sex. This was published by a surgical resident in Toronto. His name was Christopher Wallace. Um, and also my PhD supervisor and mentor, Alan Detsky, is a co-author on it, so it's of particular interest for me. Um, and it was published in the BMJ in November of 2017. All right, uh, great. And it immediately brings to mind uh, the kind of analogous study uh, looking at internal medicine care published uh, in the States in the last couple of months. So now we have a surgical study to, uh, to also talk about. Um, so, so, Kieran, what was the bottom line for the article? Well, Kevin, this was a large retrospective cohort study that examined the effect of a surgeon's biological sex on outcomes uh, in in patients, and it found small but important differences in surgical outcomes between patients treated by female and male surgeons, with the former having a small but statistically significant decreased risk of short-term post-operative death. Uh, Well, that is about the hardest outcome that you could possibly want, um, and immediately... Uh, you know, catches anybody's attention who's who's reading this. So let's let's hear a little more. Why did why did you choose the article, or why did you think that this was important to talk about? Yeah, and the last time we covered uh, differences in outcomes based on on physician sex was with Aria Lefkowitz last year, um, and it's always you know a tread carefully kind of a topic, especially when you have two male hosts on the show. But I think it's a really important thing to talk about, and I'm actually personally thankful that sex and gender are increasingly identified as important but unrecognized factors in all aspects of medicine, whether that be on physician and salary and promotion, which we talked about last year in the rounds table, to important patient outcomes, including, as you mentioned, Kevin, that elderly U.S. patients that are treated by female general internists in hospitals had lower rates of 30-day mortality and readmission than those treated by male internists. We really are in the infancy of research in this area, but it's nice to see that it's coming to the forefront. And this study sought to add to our understanding of these differences in, in physician sex by examining that on post-operative outcomes of patients undergoing common surgical procedures. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Kieran. I think that it's wonderful that these questions are starting to get asked, and it's you know, important for everybody uh, working in healthcare right now um, to really uh, give these articles a good uh, look over when they come out. Um, so how was the study designed, and where is it from? This was a retrospective study using the large wealth of administrative data that's available in Ontario, Canada, and it was conducted between the years of 2007 and 2015. It included adult patients who had one of 25 surgical interventions selected by multidisciplinary discussion with consultants from all surgical specialties. And they selected surgeries that were performed by female surgeons 
so not exclusively male surgeons. They were surgeries that needed to be common in Ontario, um, and they had to have some element of risk for complications associated with them so that there would be something to measure. Examples of these prototypical surgeries included coronary bypass surgery, multiple major vascular bypass surgeries, appendectomy, cholecystectomies, colon resection, craniotomy, total hip or knee arthroplasty, among a whole other list of, uh, of others um, that were important and common. So that's, that's interesting because that seems to be just a very kind of broad strokes selection of very common surgical procedures, which, uh, which is encouraging and spanning multiple surgical disciplines as well. So Kieran, what was the exposure for this study? So they looked at uh, patients who were undergoing one of 25 surgical procedures, and this had to be their first procedure, not a redo procedure. And the exposure was a female surgeon who was performing the surgery. And they were matched to uh, male surgeons, and patients were matched to the same procedures being performed by male surgeons, um, and were matched on uh, important factors such as the patient's, patient's age, patient's sex, uh, their comorbidities, the surgeon volume, the surgeon age, and, and to the hospital where the procedure was being performed. So it sounds like they really tried to control for other factors in the surgeon's practice uh, while mainly just differentiating on, uh, purely on the surgeon's uh, gender. That was the intent, uh, just to try to get that as the only thing that would be different between uh, individuals, both the surgeons and the patients. So what was the primary outcome of the study? So this was another composite. They looked at a composite of death, readmission, and complications in the 30 days after surgery. Uh, so again, quite hard outcomes to look at. And I think it's important uh, that they kept the 30-day complication window open as well when they're really looking at uh, disciplines that have a high degree of technical skill, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in addition to that primary outcome, they also looked at length of stay in hospital as a secondary outcome. All right, Kieran. So uh, don't keep us in suspense any longer. What was uh, the main finding of the study? So uh, as is standard when you have these large administrative data studies, they had a large sample. So they had 104,000 patients treated by just over 3,300 surgeons. Interestingly, only 774 of those uh, three, over 3,000 surgeons were female. Correspondingly, 2,500 were male. Now, before matching, uh, patients treated by female doctors were more likely to be female and younger, but overall had similar levels of comorbidity, income levels, rurality, and the year of the surgery that was performed. So no major differences there other than uh, age and, uh, and sex of the patient. Now, after you matched on all the things we talked about earlier, fewer patients treated by female surgeons died. This is the primary outcome. Fewer patients were readmitted to hospital or had complications within 30 days. Now, the, the effect size is small, but this is important with the outcome we're looking at. So if you were treated by a female surgeon, the proportion of individuals who experienced the primary outcome was 11.1% versus male surgeons was 11.6%. That's a 0.5% roughly absolute difference. And to put that in sort of a number needed to treat a kind of a sense for you, uh, it, it translates to every 230 patients who are operated by a male surgeon, one of them will have post-operative complications, including potential death. And considering the number of surgeries we do in Canada every year, uh, or even across the world, if this holds true everywhere else, that's a significantly important number. Yeah, I think this is a great example of how putting information into a number needed to treat or number needed to harm, perhaps, 
is more palatable and easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that that's the way, especially with this type of a study that makes sense to most people intuitively. The other uh, you know thing to say, once you adjusted for all of these potentially important factors that can influence uh, a patient's risk, patients who were treated by female surgeons were less likely to die within 30 days. And that was about a 22% lower odds uh, of that happening. So Kevin, if you pulled apart the composite of the primary outcome, which was one of their secondary outcomes that I didn't mention earlier, what we found was that uh, it was the death that was driving the difference in effect and not in readmissions or complications. Furthermore, there was no difference in overall length of stay postoperatively between a male and female uh, surgeon uh, and the patients they operated on. That's really a powerful statement coming out of this paper, I think, Kieran, right? Because that is looking at specifically death as the uh, defining difference between patient outcomes uh, based on surgeon, sh- surgeon sex, which is um, a kind of uh, amazing thing to see in some ways. Kevin, it is a really important finding, and I think it is a very um, interesting paper. Of course, the natural sequelae or next step question to ask is, well, what, why is this happening? And that, unfortunately, is the major limitation of retrospective data. We are not going to know the answer from this, but it definitely is an interesting hypothesis-generating study. Now, suggested mechanisms for this difference in the literature include that female doctors may be more likely to use a patient-centered approach um, and follow evidence-based guidelines. In surgery, however, it's a very technical skill, and there might be less reason to expect a difference in outcomes between male and female surgeons based on that, in in the sense that you're always kind of following evidence-based guidelines on your surgical skill because there's not a lot of variation potentially in that. I don't know, uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, the other posited uh, mechanism is that surgical training is demanding, and we see a large gender disparity with sort of a, quote, olds boys club previously. Um, and so somehow, you know, people have, have asked, do female surgeons train differently in order to be recognized in a male-dominated field? And I think I purposely won't speculate uh, as to how that comes to be, but uh, it's an interesting question to ask nevertheless. Yeah, definitely. These are very important questions that hopefully future studies and researchers will uh, help tease apart in the future. So, Kieran, what were your main learning points uh, for this article? Well, so I want the listeners to take away that after you account for patient, surgeon, and hospital-level characteristics, patients who are treated by female surgeons had a small but statistically significant decrease in 30-day mortality, um, although they had similar surgical outcomes otherwise. And that's compared to patients who are operated on by male surgeons. Now, I think one of the main uh, things for people to focus on is that these results do not necessarily support the preferential selection of a female surgeon over a male surgeon in clinical practice. They, for me, they indicate the need for further study to understand the mechanism as, as to why this is occurring before we make conclusions and change patterns of care overall. Um, and I think the last thing I would, you know, sort of provocative question I would leave the, the listeners with is often we find in research it's not the question being asked that is interesting, but rather the answer. And often that equates to the impact of the journal in which it will land in. And I, I can't help but wonder if this paper would have been published if it found a lack of or an opposite effect when it came to sex differences in surgical outcomes. 
Yes, that is a, um, a quite a potentially controversial uh, question to ask, but I think an important one to ask as well, um, as we know that the publishing patterns in major journals are not always driven by the strength of the study that, uh, that has been done. Well, Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's your first time, so maybe you didn't know it was my favorite part, but it's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. And tell us, Kevin, what is catching your eye this week? Um, so my contribution to the uh, Good Stuff segment this week was a commentary piece that was published in Academic Medicine uh, earlier this month by Dr. Danielle Offrey, who is in uh, the New York School of Medicine. And it was entitled uh, Medical Humanities, the Prescription for Uncertainty? Question mark. And... As somebody who has a uh, growing interest in narrative medicine and the medical humanities, I found this a very interesting commentary um, because her posit is that the creative aspects of medical humanities is kind of a rich resource for physicians at all training levels to help them deal with and understand the uh, practicalities of dealing with ambiguity in clinical practice. And this is something that I've certainly experienced uh, progressing through my medical school and residency career, and I imagine you have as well, Kieran. Uh, you know, and especially when we're talking about evidence-based medicine and academic rigueur, uh, and then go onto the wards and take care of patients, it, there's often a large disconnect between what uh, the studies are studying and the decisions that we have to make on a daily basis. And I think that this can leave uh, trainees and long-standing attending physicians as well with a sense of uh, frustration and lack of satisfaction about uh, the decisions they're being asked to make. Um, Dr. Offrey suggests that the humanities are unique because they actually bring uncertainty to the forefront and embellish uncertainty and force us into a kind of refre- reflective practice and that these are skills that would be useful for physicians going forward to foster and develop so that they can basically understand the complex context that they're working in. I can't help but wonder how certain Dr. Offrey is about the effect of humanities on uncertainty. But that's just a little shot across the bow. But I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, uh, I'm learning to be comfortable with uncertainty, but by no means am I there. And I recognize its importance. So, Kevin, uh, this week I read something in the New York Times Health section that's related actually to the article that I covered this week. And it's, it's about a large study that was presented at the American Heart Association meeting recently. And it found that outside of hospitals, interestingly, men are far more likely to get CPR than women in the event of a cardiac arrest out in public. And we know that the two most important predictors of survival in cardiac arrest are early effective CPR and defibrillation. Now, strangely, there were no in-home differences as to sex... Um, Uh, differences in receiving CPR. But if a cardiac arrest occurred out in public, 45% of men got assistance with CPR, whereas only 39% of women did. And overall, that led to a 29% increased chance of survival for men because they got CPR more often. So much like our study that we talked about above, the natural question is to ask, why does this occur? And from this study, we don't know either. Um, But the study uh, investigators posit that, well, there are fundamental anatomical differences between the male and female chest, and perhaps uh, this leads to different public behaviors when it comes to CPR, 
Um, however, we won't know for sure. That's really interesting, uh, Kieran, and I had heard about this presentation before as well, and uh, really astounding numbers in terms of the sex um, disparity there in terms of receiving CPR. Um, the maybe slight silver lining or positive aspect of this is that there was, uh, you know, it's another example of uh, out-of-hospital CPR actually showing true benefit and uh, in terms of survival uh, rates. So that's maybe a bit of a silver lining. Absolutely. Well, Kevin, a real pleasure to have you on the show this week. We hope you uh, will come back and join us again another day. Um, and until then, we will, I'm going to do it again, preserve you in our memories. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Third time's a charm. Thanks a lot, Karen. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundtable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundtable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 